Hey, Tom Tilly with you for The Briefing, joined by Katrina Blowers. And today, Katrina, you've got an interview with a really interesting guy, Simon Holmes, of court. Yeah, so he's the guy behind the teal wave at this year's federal election. He's also the son of Australia's very first billionaire. And we talk quite a bit about how his early experiences at Geelong Grammar, which of course is famous for being the very posh school where now King Charles went when he was in Australia. He was bullied there quite badly and it really influenced his, I guess, grown-up decision to overturn and question power structures and come up with the group Climate 200, which obviously had a huge impact at the federal election and will also make a big mark, or they're hoping to make a big mark, on the upcoming Victorian and New South Wales elections. The community came together and realised that they could get a better outcome for the community if they were represented by someone whose first loyalty was to the community rather than to the party system with its factions and branches and party infrastructure and donors. Wow, really interesting to link what he did at the last federal election with those teal independents to his backstory and that it involves bullying and revenge, I guess. Um, (laughs) Huge shake-up to Australian politics. And, yeah, as you say there, really interesting to see what impact it might have at the upcoming state election. So that is an interview with Simon Holmes of Court in the briefing, which comes right after today's headlines. Here they are. It is Monday, October 24. So we have flooding in towns from northern New South Wales all the way down to central Victoria. There are more than 200 warnings in place. Yeah, at Atuka Moama on the New South Wales-Victorian border, the river there is expected to peak today at its highest level in more than 100 years. And up in the northern rivers of New South Wales, Lismore is bracing for a third flood event in just eight months. And there are 100 ADF personnel already there. The town centre itself is still only half rebuilt from the events early in the year. And it's certainly a big part of the conversation around town. Yeah, I'm sure it is. That's Lismore local Ross there. Uh, Yeah, roads are still, um, you know, very difficult to drive on, huge potholes everywhere. So it must be a really difficult time for everyone in Lismore. That rain is still falling. Some parts of New South Wales to get up to 100 millimetres, up to 50 in parts of Victoria and then it is expected to ease by Wednesday, but the Bureau is saying it could come back after that. Australia has signed a global methane pledge and will reduce production by at least 30% by 2030. Methane is 24% of Australia's emissions and we are the world's 11th biggest emitter of methane. So it's very important that we have a seat at the table and we are part of the solution. Minister for Climate Change and Energy, Chris Bowen there. We now join 122 other nations in the aspiration target. Yeah, Chris Bowen says the government will work closely with the livestock sector to tackle emissions and improve research and development programs. And this comes after growing pressure from Joe Biden's administration for Australia to pursue stronger climate action on the world stage. Chinese President Xi Jinping is embarking on a historic third term. So this means he now becomes the first Chinese Communist Party leader in 30 years to break a 10-year limit on leadership. He'll now be leader for at least another five. Yeah, and at the close of the Chinese Communist Party Congress, after his confirmation as leader, he spoke about the need to be alert to threats and dangers, and he spoke about the strength of China's economy. Just as China cannot develop in isolation from the world, the world needs China for its development. 
One incident that raised quite a few eyebrows at this Congress, which has been going on for more than a week now, uh, the former president, Hugh Jintao, was escorted away. Official sources said it was due to ill health, but there's speculation it was because Hu Jintao didn't endorse Xi Jinping's third term and the 79-year-old appeared to resist leaving. Yeah, and if you search whose name on Chinese social media, it appears to be heavily censored. Netball Australia's sponsorship crisis is deepening. Over the weekend, Gina Reinhart's company, Hancock Prospecting, pulled its $15 million sponsorship of the Diamonds. Now, they only signed on for this in late September. Uh, This all came after members of the team refused to wear the company's logo. So the players were acting in support of Indigenous player Donnell Wallum, who took offence to a racist comment made by Gina's father, Lang Hancock, back in 1994. And Netball Australia boss Kelly Ryan says the future of the sport is on tenderhooks. It's very disappointing to lose this funding, which was really going to help accelerate us forward. However, I'm still incredibly confident that we still have the right plans in place that will get the sport to where it needs to be. That's Ryan there on Channel 9. So I've been following this story all weekend. I find it fascinating, first of all, uh, Gina Reinhart making that decision as swiftly as she did and also the reasons that she gave for that. So it's since come to light that Danelle, who is set to make her international debut against England, you know, she's an absolute gun of a player. Uh, she had originally asked Netball Australia for an exemption to wear the logo. She was then knocked back. The Players Association came out late last night saying she then agreed she would wear the logo after the pressure became too much. But Ryan Hart just said, no way. Um, there are definitely more targeted and genuine ways to progress social or political courses. Um, she thought that you know, this whole thing was about self-publicity. She also pointed to massive infighting within Netball Australia and within the Players Association and the sports administrators. And she said she was just sick of it and she didn't want to be associated with uh, the organisation anymore. And that, in fact, her company does an awful lot for Indigenous sport in the community. Mm, I mean, I guess they wanted her to denounce her father's comments, which she didn't. But, yeah, it's a a very tricky um, situation, especially for a sport like netball, which was in a massive financial hole until this money came along. And it's not a sport like AFL, for example, that gets, you know, huge broadcast deals and and lots of money coming in from other sources. So this money would have really helped the sport. So it's come at a real price. And um, there was a similar story in cricket last week where the Alinta Energy sponsorship was not renewed after the captain, Pat Cummins, raised issues with its carbon footprint. Um, that mm. was a $40 million deal. Potentially in cricket, uh, they've got a, you know, a better chance of picking up another sponsor, but for netball, it'll be quite hard. Yeah, and when you look at where sponsorship money can come from now, outside of gambling, alcohol and energy, I mean, the car industry is pretty much dead. Um, You've got to respect these players for taking a stand, but they also need to get the money from somewhere. And the other big story that's going to develop this week is the UK leadership vote. So Boris Johnson is back from his Caribbean holiday. He's expected to have another crack at being Prime Minister after Liz Truss resigned on Friday. We do have the numbers, just so you know. Um, uh, Everybody's speculating. And this is a time when we need a big player like Boris in our politics. So 
um, I think he will. Do we need him back? That's Northern <laughs> Ireland Secretary Chris Heaton-Harrison on Sky News UK there. The other big contender, Rishi Sunak, has officially declared he is running. He's considered the front runner, so he jumped on Twitter overnight to make his political intentions clear, asking voters for the opportunity to help fix the country's problems. Look, I'm secretly hoping that Hugh Grant will step up. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Hugh Grant, it's your time. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's going to be a really interesting contest because uh, this guy, Rishi Shunak, is just 42 years old. Um, He was the treasurer during the two years of the pandemic. Um, He also, when he was up against Liz Truss in the last leadership ballot, he forecast the chaos that her tax platform would cause to financial markets. Um, So he has really strong economic credentials, which is what Britain needs right now as it goes into this high inflation period, um, potentially a recession following that. So he brings a lot to the table. All right, Tom, up next, we are going to hear from the man behind the huge shake-up at the last federal election and the incident in his childhood which led him to rethinking absolutely everything about how we handle modern power structures. Hey, Katrina Blowers here with you. So on election day, a record number of independents seized previously safe seats and helped spell the end of the near decade-long Liberal government. This was a teal wave that surged stronger than anyone had expected. And it was backed by Climate 200, a non-profit, non-partisan group that employed crowdfunding, whose founder, Simon Holmes Accord, says is just getting started. Now, Holmes Accord is a pretty fascinating guy. He's a clean energy analyst. He's a self-described introvert. He's an investor. He was bullied as a kid. And he comes from one of Australia's richest families. He's copped a lot of flack for being brash and for buying votes, which we're going to talk to him about. And he's just written a book about how his Climate 200 group won over what he calls the forgotten people of the 21st century, women and younger voters especially, and how no seat in Australia will ever be safe again. Simon Holmes Accord, thank you for joining us on the briefing. Now, one thing I noticed is that your name is rarely mentioned without son of a billionaire being said in the same sentence. What has it been like for you being defined this way throughout your whole life? Well, it's been a bit surreal, actually. My my father was um, a very successful businessman in, in the 80s, and I admire him greatly, but he, he died 32 years ago. So a large part of my life, you know, the vast majority of my life, I've operated without that moniker, I guess, over my head. But somehow through the election, that became a defining catchphrase. And I and I go into the book that you know, I think there's a fair bit more about me than that. Let's go back to young Simon, because that has obviously shaped who you are today and your values. And in particular, you tell a story about being bullied at school. You went to Geelong Grammar, which, you know, is quite a, a famous school in Victoria. And you talk about, you know, copying it a bit on shows like Sky News After Dark and how that early experience of being bullied really set you up well to weather that criticism. Tell us a bit about that. There's some of that that does make you more resilient if you if you survive it. Um, there's some of it that makes you more resilient. And I think some of it definitely made me more attuned to integrity and to my, uh, your strong lifelong um, hatred of bullying. It's funny how 
bullying shapes people in different ways. For some people, it can make them adult bullies, you know. For others, as you say, it can totally define your values and make you want to live that value of integrity and honesty. Why do you think it made you go down that path? I think just six years of of watching uh, how power structures can be put in place that aren't based on merit or aren't based on consent, but based on unfair advantage. In that case, just because people were older than you, they were bigger than you or the school structures supported it. But uh, yeah, anytime I've seen anything in life that reflects any of that early experience, I guess um, something in the reptilian brain clicks and, uh, and, and I feel I've got to do something about it. You also talk in the book about becoming disillusioned with the political mainstream, in particular when you attempted to bring climate science to the Liberal Party. Describe for us how all that unfolded. So I, I live in, in Kuyong, seat in Victoria's inner east suburbs, which you know, there'd been, been a conservative male MP since Federation in that seat. Um, I moved there about 20 years ago and my local member was Josh Frydenberg and I saw him as as a talented politician who would be around for a very long time, but in a party that was slowly drifting away from support for renewables and into climate denial. And I saw that as such a shame that a up-and-coming MP would get on the wrong side of history for their career. And I tried to help uh, Mr. Frydenberg see that there was a much better future for him if he got on the right side of history. So I, I tried for a long time change within the party. Eventually, um, I was a member of a fundraising club that um, helped Mr. Frydenberg. And eventually, I got thrown out of that club after I criticised uh, the government at the time for its efforts to keep coal power going. And I guess that was one of a, a few incidents that I go into in the book when I realised that sometimes change from within sometimes is futile and you have to try to find ways of change from the outside. And I came across this uh, community independence model and um, that, well, a lot of the book goes into how that became um, a place where I could use my skills to make a difference. I'll get to that in just a second, but I'm curious, what's your relationship like with Josh Frydenberg now? Are you on each other's Christmas card lists? Well, we haven't spoken since the election, and I'd say that you know, since I was thrown out of that club and later on thrown out of a, a meet and greet at a, at a local pub, relations have been a little bit frosty. But <laughs> we'll see to what say happens. the least, <laughs> we'll see what happens. So you mentioned just then that you—it was 2013, really—that you saw another way. It was Cathy McGowan's election as a community independent, which gave you a template for direct political engagement. Is that when the light bulb first went off? Well, I was vaguely aware of what happened in 2013, but I didn't really understand the community side to it. You know, we've, we've always had independence, just a handful in, in Parliament, um, never really a significant part of Parliament, except in that period 2010 to 13, when there was a minority government and the independents with the rest of the crossbench really helped bring in quite a, a step change in Australia's climate policy. So I had I had some inkling that, that independents were special. But what happened in, in 2013 is that the community came together in Indi, uh, which is the seat in northern Victoria just on the, on the border. The community came together and realised that they could get a better outcome for the community if they were represented by 
someone whose first loyalty was to the community rather than to the party system with its factions and branches and party infrastructure and donors, they developed this community engagement model. And it looked like it was going to be a one-off for a while. And then we saw when Malcolm Turnbull was rolled and replaced with um, yeah, the community had a choice between his successor in the Liberal Party or Dr. Karen Phelps, the community candidate, and they chose Karen. And then at the next federal election, Kathy McGowan um, retired and her community selected another independent, Helen Haynes. And over in Warringah, the former seat of Tony Abbott, the community chose Zali Stegall over Tony Abbott. So I, I saw this model was spreading. It wasn't just a one-off in Indi. It could be adapted and adopted by communities around Australia and was being so. So I thought that's a really interesting model. I've seen independents do great stuff in the house and I've seen that it's now become viable for communities to find their own candidate from a great pool of people across their community, not just into partisan silos. The communities could get their own candidate to represent them. And I guess it also coincided historically with people being able to get their message out there via social media, not having to rely on mainstream media channels and also crowdfunding. What a game changer that was. So people getting their heads around that as a concept, that must have really helped as well. Yes, for so long, for you know, for the last hundred since Federation, you've really needed a party system to have a good chance of getting candidates into power. There's so much that the parties were able to bring to the table to win political battles. But there have been some disruptions that have come to politics over the last 20 years or so. With crowdfunding, we were able to put together you know, 11,200 people in the end supported Climate 200. And that gave us the ability to help communities have a fighting chance against the party machines. So by the time the dust had settled after this year's election, six new Climate 200-backed MPs had been installed. Um, they took over in some pretty prized political turf. Uh, you've now said no seat should be considered safe in this new political environment. We've got the Victorian election coming up, New South Wales next year. What can we expect here? Well, communities are looking at this model of community representation at the state level as well as they did federally. Communities around Victoria, they're probably around about nine or ten, uh, have put candidates forward. Uh, Climate 200 is supporting four of them at the upcoming Victorian state election. And in, in New South Wales, that election will be in March of next year. We've had approaches from about ten communities uh, so far who are at the early stages of building their campaigns and People are out now looking for candidates and we've done polling, um, put polls into the field in both Victoria and New South Wales and the appetite at the state level for representation is very strong. People are often questioning your motives. What What is your long game? What is it that you really want to achieve here and why won't you run for politics? I, I read an interview with your mum who said she'd hate for you to be a politician. So what is your long game? So Climate 200's got a very, very simple game. We want the majority of members of parliament in Australia, um, you know, at state and federal level, to support a science-based response to climate change, to rooting out corruption from politics and advancing the treatment and respect for, for women in public life, in communities, in family life. There are three values that guide the kind of campaigns, candidates we support, and their three values that bring together our community of now more than 12,000 donors. We think that 
whatever cause you champion, if we have a better functioning democracy, one where members of parliament are responsible to their communities rather than these opaque and very convoluted power structures, if MPs are really dedicated to democracy and answerable to their communities, then we'll get better outcomes no matter what the primary purpose that you have. For me, climate action is incredibly important. We've lost a decade in responding, but I see so many benefits for Australia, so much opportunity for us to grab. And it's been been such a shame that we've um, we've left that on the shelf for so long. And for you personally, do you feel like you can make more of an impact as a convener rather than entering the fray and getting your hands dirty and running for a seat yourself? I think it takes a very special person to run for politics, someone who's in listening mode the whole time, who's out in the community the whole time, and um, uh, an extrovert. The more I've seen these amazing people who stand up for their community, um, the more I'm in awe of the skills they have, the energy they bring, and um, I realise that there are people who are phenomenal at it and it wouldn't be me. That was Simon Holmes Accord, who's the convener of the Climate 200 Group. He's also written a book called The Big Teal in the National Interest, which is out now. Uh, he told me he just casually smashed that book out in a month uh, in July, just after the election, as you do. So um, really fascinating reading if you want to get an insight into how it really reset the game for politics and potentially what could happen in these upcoming elections. We've got the Victorian election coming up on the 26th of November and of course New South Wales next year. So some really interesting times ahead. Listener.